Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC and more than 20 other coins. Download the Crypto.com app now to find out how much you could be earning. One Inch Exchange is DeFi's leading DEX aggregator that discovers the best trade practices across all DEXs. One Inch was launched in May 2019 by two white hat hackers at ETH Global's ETH New York Hackathon. One Inch has reached almost $7 billion in overall volume in just over a year. Today's topic is the recently proposed FinCEN rule around crypto transactions related to unhosted wallets, self-hosted wallets, or just plain wallets, whatever you want to call them. Here to discuss are Jeremy Allaire, founder and CEO of Circle, and Kristen Smith, executive director of the Blockchain Association. Welcome, Jeremy and Kristen. Thanks for having us. Because this involves news, I'm just going to let the audience know up front that we are recording Saturday morning, the day after the proposed rule was published. First, can you guys explain what this rule is? Basically, um, the, the rule as proposed, and, and, and we'll come back to the fact that even the fact that this is a proposed rule versus a final rule, which has been a huge battle, and Kristen has been at the front lines of that, which we'll talk about. But the, the proposed rule um, is uh, really around um, transaction reporting for individuals that use a, a, a custodial wallet or an exchange, or it's technically in the, in the rule a money service business or a bank. So a regulated financial institution in the United States um, and any transaction that involves, um, you know, essentially sending or receiving funds from a crypto wallet um, that is not associated with another regulated financial institution or money service business, uh, whether internationally or the U S and it essentially says that if an individual is sending greater than three thousand uh, dollars, you know, uh, over a crypto network, um, then you need to actually uh, record their full KYC information. You need to receive the name and address of the recipient, uh, and then keep that record. And then, if it's greater than ten thousand uh, dollars, let's say you're sending, uh, you know, these days half a Bitcoin uh, to to someone to uh, uh, another, you know, Bitcoin wallet that either you control or is some someone else. Um, you you also need to collect that name and address of the recipient, and you need to report it um, all of that information uh, to the uh, to, to FinCEN, uh, but you know essentially to the federal government and law enforcement in the federal government. Um, and so there's a, a essentially a data feed 
that gets sent to uh, the U.S. government with all transactions above ten thousand dollars with with uh, you know uh, that collected information, and then they can go on and, and monitor that uh, freely and track your blockchain activity. It's bad. <laughs> and why do you say that? <laughs> well, listen, I think there are a couple couple reasons it's problematic. One, um, and as proposed, all of the comments for this rule are due on January 4th, um, which isn't a lot of time given that uh, we've got you know Christmas and New Year's and a couple of things coming up. Um, it's going to be a pretty intense couple of weeks to to get that because um, there are a lot of questions about how you would actually go around collecting this information. And, you know, it's, it's not that our exchanges can't get out there and, and, and do this type of work, but, um, but it is, it is a huge burden to just turn on a dime, especially um, there's no proposed, you know, implementation period here. It would take a long time to do this. Um, And so, so yeah, but I think, more problematically, and I'll let Jeremy go into this, is that they're not not every self-hosted wallet has a name and a physical address, right? If you're working with a smart contract, um, you know this is going to prohibit um, or prevent crypto from going from an ex- exchange wallet into um, smart contracts, and that's the whole point of uh, everything that we're all building here is to to get more services that are built on top of smart contracts. But I'll let Jeremy talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's so many issues with with the proposed rule. There's so many issues with the process by which this is happening. This is, you know, a, a, a midnight rulemaking, uh, you know, attempt. This is extremely unilateral uh, from the Secretary of Treasury himself, uh, despite uh, significant objections throughout the government, including from within law enforcement to this. So this is a highly politically motivated individual who wants to jam this through and is doing everything in his power uh, to do that, despite uh, despite many, many good actors in the federal government who I think realize that something like this should not be just jammed through and requires really careful review, deliberation and and planning and thinking. So we'll come back to that maybe. But I I, I do want to say. Yeah, when you when you look at blockchains, like the fundamental innovation today is this this infrastructure where you can actually have programmable money. Um, the the breakthroughs that are happening. This is what motivated me to get in the industry. You know, almost eight years ago was this idea that you could have, you know, money as a data type on the internet, and you could program it, and you could create contracts around it, and that those could be enforced by code and work globally and interoperably and and that that would eventually allow for financial services innovation and access to that financial services innovation you know globally as well um really profound stuff and you know this rule basically just completely ignores the fact that that even exists um it completely ignores the fact that um you know innovation in in open finance is built on this idea of you know, smart contracts that whether they're providing lending markets or they're providing other forms of economic arrangements are executing in code and that individuals for the first time ever have the ability to access and interact with those. Um, that's a that's a huge breakthrough. And I think, you know, there, there's obviously like the full decentralization movement, which says, well, the whole point is to get outside of regulated intermediaries. And as long as we have access to, you know, to this outside of regulated intermediaries, it's fine. Uh, it doesn't matter. But I think we want a world where 
you know, financial institutions are able to offer, whether it's a business or a consumer, are able to offer people access to this, uh, offer access to these services around the world. I think we want that world. Um, and, you know, effectively, you know, this rule, it's, it says nothing to this issue. And the, the reality is that um, individuals and businesses are going to want to be able to transact with smart contracts. Like, it's sort of like, duh. Like that, that's like so much. And, you know, so this is essentially, I think, you know, really, really limiting. And, and by, by saying nothing to that issue, um, it raises very significant questions about how, you know, a Coinbase, if you're on Coinbase.com, can you, can you actually, you know, interact with a smart contract? What is staking? Is staking interacting with a smart contract? What are, what are all these things? What, what can a, a consumer facing or a business facing institution do? So that's a major issue. And I I think coming back to the procedural question, you know, what we ought to do is say, okay, we have these, you know, kind of concerns and they're, I think they are legitimate concerns, you know, money laundering and financial crime is legitimate. um, And we can, you know, talk about that, but, you know, you, you don't jam it through over the holidays without any consideration, without any thinking, without any industry engagement. And, you know, the, the letter, yeah, or the, the, the rule says, oh, yeah, we, we had an hour meeting in March with a few people from exchanges. And last year we went to California for a day. Big deal. I mean, that, <laughs> that is not industry engagement. So um, the, the reality here is that um, we, need, we need industry to be able to work on this and in a really material way and not just this jam through kind of situation. So let's parse out a bunch of what you just spoke about. I'm so curious about what you said about how this isn't even a unilateral um, motion from the government that, you know, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin apparently is the one individual you imply that's really driving this and that actual people who work in this area, you know, in law enforcement are opposed um, why is he so driven to do this? What is his perception about what's happening in the crypto industry that makes him feel that this is the right way to go? Yeah, so we started to get wind that Secretary Mnuchin had serious concerns with Bitcoin, really, um, and crypto in general, but um, he he really does not like Bitcoin. Um, we started getting a sense of this over the summer, around the same time that we the FATF released their report that had some suggested policy tools that um, policymakers could use if they had concerns about self-hosted wallets. Um, and um, what we were hearing at the time was was very concerning because, um, you know, we would hear stories about how he wants to just ban Bitcoin entirely, um, that he doesn't like permissionless networks, that he doesn't want any of this stuff. He wants to go after it. And, you know, that's when at the Blockchain Association, prior to this, we had never been concerned about Bank Secrecy Act issues. We thought that the guidance that FinCEN had put out um, in uh, 2014 and again in 20, or 2013, I guess, and again in 2019 was very reasonable and we didn't have any issues with the policy. But when we started hearing that Mnuchin was so fired up about this, um, we decided that, okay, if something's going to be coming, we need to get into this. And so we worked with our membership and drafted a report um, called Self-Hosted Wallets in the Future of Free Societies. Um, was and this the, the one that we went over in the episode with yes. Jake? Uh, okay. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. That episode um, will be in the show notes for people. It was with Jake Chervinsky of Compound. Yes. And so we released that in, in November. And 
what had always kind of been going on in the back of my mind is like, okay, they're going to kick off a notice to propose rulemaking that is going to go after self-hosted wallets. They know you can't actually ban Bitcoin. You can't actually prevent permissionless networks from existing, but they're going to try to go at the interaction between the regulated world and and um, the less regulated world. And so, you know, we wrote this report and we sent it around uh, to folks in government and um, very quickly heard back from FinCEN that this was very timely and that they wanted to meet um, as soon as possible. And so we did um, some large meetings there um, with with folks from Treasury and folks from FinCEN. Uh, we also did some meetings on the Hill. Um, but all this is to say that the, the reason we, we wanted to lay the foundation is we always envisioned this would be a long battle, right? Because you typically have a notice of proposed rulemaking. There's a 30, 60, sometimes even 90-day comment period. There's often follow-on comment periods. Um, and it's a very open process, and it allows for a lot of dialogue back and forth. But what we learned a couple of weeks ago is that this was actually being floated as an interim final rule. And an interim final rule goes into effect immediately. There's um, often a common period associated with it, but, you know, and then, then it becomes a final, final rule. Only in government can you have a final, final rule. But the interim final rule would go into effect immediately. And, and the reason that they were using to bypass the regular process is that there, there's kind of this public interest um, exception to, to going through the process. Um, but the reason, the reason they, they said this was that um, well, the, the money launderers will move their money around and they will be able to like get around the rule if we give them any advance notice. So um, all, all of that is to say that the real time has nothing here, to do with January 20th. It yes, has nothing to do with Mnuchin is, is actually 20th. being booted out of power and that he's yes. trying to get um, done something that he personally thinks it needs to happen. Like, let's talk honestly about this. This is a yes. bunch of BS. Yes, but the motivation for this is that he this stuff and he doesn't understand this stuff. There is no like we have tried to game out every possible angle here. There's no like I want to you know leave and make a bunch of money in traditional banking. I mean the guy's already worth hundreds of millions of dollars. This isn't like a career play. This isn't he isn't beholden to any interests. He just fundamentally at his core so believes I, yeah. that this stuff is bad. I have a story about that, and I think it's relevant. Um, so almost a year ago in January at Davos, there was a closed session, closed door meeting uh, where, um, you know, uh, a small number of people from the crypto industry and, and folks, you know, like David Marcus, myself and, and others. But, but basically, like the heads of the leading financial institutions in the world, major central bank heads, you know, the heads of the BIS, the SWIFT, uh, I mean, a lot of people... And it was meant to be a dialogue on, you know, how, what, what kind of governance do we need around digital currency? What should this look like? And Mnuchin was, was brought in and he sat at the front of the room and, and people kind of got called on to give their, their perspective on things. And, and he got up, you know, he basically you just mocked Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, he essentially just started by saying, you can buy Bitcoin, you can do whatever the hell you want with it. I think it's, you know, basically this is complete trash and, you know, you might as well just buy a bushel of bananas. And, you know, I mean, he, he, he literally kind of went off on this personal rant about, you know, how stupid he thought Bitcoin was. And, you know, if you want to, if you want to, you know, do that, you know, fine, basically kind of mockingly. Um, but you, if you want to do that, you, you know, and, and you want to like transfer that and control it yourself, no, no way, basically over my dead body. 
Um, and so I think there's a mixture of, of a personal sentiment that he thinks he just, I, I think there's, you know, I, I've seen this for eight years, like people who come out of the traditional financial system have an enormous amount of cognitive dissonance about open finance, about the idea of, you know, digital money that exists outside the realm of, of, of the government or corporations. And, and I think, um, he's one of those people who is just, it, it, it sort of violates his frame of reference for what, how the world works. And it makes him angry. And I think he felt like he was very much on a personal mission on, the, on this issue. And so that was the, the first time I, I really saw that. And, um, and obviously we're, we're sort of seeing that play out in the, in the twilight of, of the administration. And yeah, and I think I was going to say, going back to your original question though, Laura, he's, he's alone on this. He is a hundred percent alone. We have law enforcement agencies that don't think that this is going to be a useful rule. Uh, we have FinCEN itself that, yes, the rule came from FinCEN, but there are very smart people at FinCEN that understand crypto and they understand that this is going to be very problematic for all the innovation that's going on. Um, but they're at the direction of the Treasury Secretary on this. So we have, you know, staff level people at the White House that are um, you know, that have been helping to push back on this. So we have members of Congress that are wanting to push back on this. And even folks I've heard, you know, that work for the secretary directly don't think this is the right approach, but he is on a personal mission. And, and the logistics, by the way, of getting a rule out the door are, are incredibly complicated. And what he has done to get this posted as quickly as he has is like really quite remarkable. Um, he is, you know, it's like where there's a will, there's a way. And even though there's all this opposition against it, he is, um, you know, taking a, a personal, you know, level interest in ushering this through at the last minute. It's so fascinating. One thing that I'm curious about, though, is, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, FinCEN did release guidance twice that the industry um, largely felt was pretty sensible. So I was curious um, at this point in time, what do the people who don't think that this is a good role, you know, in FinCEN or, or just pretty much any of the law enforcement or other uh, people in government that you mentioned, what would what do they think should be done? Like, do, ha do they have any kind of uh, proposals on their wish list? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, you know, so the way this has played out over the past couple of weeks is, um, you know, there was a big stakeholder meeting um, because with with different leaders at these various agencies. And um, everyone does agree that there's something needs to be done in general about concerns of illicit finance. I mean, it's hard to not have that position, especially when you're, um, you know, sitting in government. Um, there were um, a lot of concerns around the process at the time. Um, I think I think the smarter way and those that are more informed understands that blockchains are actually a little bit different than cash. I know we like love to like make the comparison and it's useful in certain circumstances, but they're actually really cool, amazing tools that are used every day. We have Chainalysis and Elliptic and CypherTrace that are all out there um, working with law enforcement, working with companies to help track down and figure out, you know, who the bad guys are and where the illicit financial activity is going. And that is like very cool and different than how you would go and chase down the bad guys in the traditional world and in the traditional financial services world. And so 
the right way to have this is to have a conversation is what else could we be doing? How can we use the unique characteristics of the blockchain to help us find these transactions that that are bad and, and the people who are associated with them, as opposed to taking a you know regime that is meant for an old system and trying to apply it on top of crypto. And I think there are lots of people that are very interested and open in how to have that conversation. Um, but they want to have that conversation first before, you know, crafting this midnight rule and, and cramming it down um, at the very last minute. And one other thing that I really wanted to ask about a little bit further is um, I actually already engaged in a little bit of a Twitter debate about this with Ari Paul, but I actually, I think the point I was arguing was wrong and, and he was right. Um, he was saying that actually this doesn't really affect people who already primarily transact in wallets or, or even people who would choose to do so, um, which I actually honestly at this point in time do think um, probably would describe is the description of the majority of people who operate in DeFi at the moment that they're not doing it from a business, that they're doing it from their own personal wallet. So if, you know, in the future, people have to, uh, you know, on-ramp through something like Coinbase, but then transfer for under, you know, 3000 or 10000 or whatever to their own personal wallet and then engage in DeFi from there, like, what is the problem? You know, does it... Because I, like my sense earlier, even also from the FinCEN guidance was that in a way that that guidance would probably just drive more people to interact from their own wallets. And I understand, you know, that raises maybe some security issues if you're using, you know, huge amounts of money. But, um, you know, for most average people, you know, it's just it's just going to be how they're going to interact. And a yeah. lot of people kind of like that idea that that's how most people would interact. So so Ari was saying this is really going to affect businesses more than individuals. That's what his point was. Right. I, I, I read his threads and I think he makes some very strong points and I, and I agree with most of it. And, and, and just to maybe reiterate what that, how that translates is, you know, I, I go to an exchange, I go to, I, uh, I work with a custodian, I'm getting some USDC or Bitcoin or whatever I'm doing. And in this new rule, let's say I want to, you know, take $15,000 and move it so I can use that and put it into uh, DeFi or a DEX or whatever it is. Yeah, I need to say, I, I'm putting this in a self-hosted wallet. It's my wallet. You have my name and address. That's what I'm doing. And, you know, I can imagine a user interface where there's essentially like, it, it you know, the service uh, identifies, okay, you're, you're not sending to another VASP. You're sending to a, an unknown wallet a checkbox that says, this is my wallet. And, you know, it, it goes and then you go and interact with DeFi, right? So, so at a practical level, I think that is accurate. Now, here's the difference. Here's the challenge. Under this rule, this, this rule will mean that uh, effectively, the, the record of you as an individual doing that uh, and the blockchain address, those just get sent in a data feed to the federal government and law enforcement, and they can do whatever they want with it. And so whether you're transacting with another person using an unhosted wallet or your own on your own account, so to speak, um, now, basically, I mean, we know how all this works. The data feed goes to the government and I'm, they're quite capable of writing software. And so you, you can imagine, okay, well, now we have this data feed and now we can basically have surveillance downstream over every transaction on chain tied to a specific identity. 
and tied to uh, that. Now, in in the traditional financial system, there's nothing equivalent to that. You actually, the government needs to subpoena to get that information unless the financial institution deems that the, the person is doing something suspicious, where they have reason to believe that there's uh, uh, money laundering or financial crime or s- some other action. If, if they do, then they have to report it to the government. Now, anyone who transacts above $10,000 is presumed to be a money launderer and are now under full surveillance and monitoring. Um, they can be uh, without consent. And that is what this rule does. Um, when you take cash out of a bank, uh, you take $10,000 cash out of the bank, that does get reported. But you know, there's not someone looking over your shoulder everywhere you go and seeing what you did. Um, so there's a huge difference. And as we move into a world of, of quote unquote, you know, digital money on internets, on blockchains, um, this is a, 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 a small step towards radically higher levels of surveillance. Um, and it is different than the way it works in the existing banking system. And so while it might feel good to say, oh, well, I can just put it in my self-hosted wallet and then I can do what I want. Well, you've also, you've done that and, your blockchain addresses uh, and your your transaction downstream transaction activity are, are now you know under surveillance without your without you knowing or being able to do anything about it. And um, just remind me also, what is the information that is required to be reported? It's what identity? Um, yeah, can you just list all the things? Yeah, do you do you want to talk about yeah. that, Kristen? Well, no, for for the self hosted wallet, the customer registered with the exchange, there's information reporting about that. But the identity of the self-hosted wallet, the wallet ad- self-hosted wallet address has to be have a name and physical address. The physical address is kind of a, a particularly complicated one for some of the DeFi <laughs> stuff. But yeah, I mean, the real question is, is does that, in, does it, and the rule does not specifically say that the CTR, the, the what is a kind of currency, uh, currency transaction, transaction report. report, yeah, does the CTR include um, blockchain address um, or wallet address? Uh, now, like they SARS for for virtual currency uh, exchangers, suspicious uh, activity report. Yeah, sorry, suspicious activity reports that are filed do require inclusion of, of blockchain addresses. And so that's a, that's certainly a, a, an open clarification, but I, I think if in fact these CTRs do include your wallet address, um, that is a, an enormous amount of, you know, sort of oversight that becomes possible. Um, and then someone else also said something like, and I don't know if this is true, that then if you interact with somebody, then the exchange also will need to know their entire transaction history or something like that if you're transacting above a certain amount go ahead i don't Kristen. think you need i don't think you need the whole no. transaction history no, um, no you need no. to the, the money service business or or bank who's providing you know interaction w- with blockchains is required to keep those records for statutory 5 years basically so so for you know transactions of $3000 um, you know, you, you need to essentially internally log what is like your own CTR. You need to track that so that that is on record. In the event that you got a subpoena, those records would be available to the government, um, you know, over, over a statutory period of five years. 
One other thing that I want to ask about this was, so FinCEN also is going to try to propose these rules around structuring, which is, you know, ways in which users might try to break these larger transactions that would trip these requirements into smaller ones so, you know, they don't have to report. But then I actually try to glance through the document to figure out how they're going to do that. And it just looks like all they're saying is like, it's prohibited. Do you get a sense of what that would look like or how they would prevent that? I mean, my my take on that is, so as a as a financial institution, we are required to have AML programs and monitoring to identify structuring activity uh, and report it. Um, I, I think it's not entirely clear what how that translates in this proposed rule. Um, I think uh, effectively what I think it says is if your internal systems that are designed to identify structuring, identify structuring, then you need to uh, presumably... Uh, either freeze the transaction or uh, close the account. Or again, the details are not there, but it, it's essentially to um, have a, a, a more intense intervention uh, than just uh, I'm, I'm seeing structuring and I'm filing a SAR. Okay, so in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about the impact of this and also what can what the industry plans to do about it. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. OneInch is a decentralized exchange aggregator that sources liquidity from the top DEXs and liquidity sources to save users money and time on swaps. OneInch is capable of finding the best possible trading paths and splitting them among multiple market depths. Recently, the OneInch team unveiled OneInch version 2. The main highlights of V2 are Pathfinder, an API that contains a new discovery and routing algorithm, and a new intuitive user-friendly UI. The V2 improvements ensure the best rates on swaps while dramatically cutting response time. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Back to my conversation with Jeremy and Kristen. So, um, so okay, so now I feel like I have a better understanding of what's included in the rule, but is there anything else that we should let people know about? Like what is, you know, the con- the content of this proposed rule before we move on to other topics? I think we got all the okay. high-level points. Well, one thing that I was wondering, because, you know, we did talk about DeFi, but I also wondered how this rule could affect the wider world of dApps in general or Web3. Like, you know, if you wanted to buy, like if you had um, some $10,000 crypto kitty or something you wanted to buy from somebody, um, how would that affect things? Like, would you need to get the KYC from that person or like, I, I don't know how this would impact? Well, I, I think you know, this gets back to your comments about your thread with Ari Paul, right? Which is basically, um, you know, if, if you're using a dApp, um, you're, you're using that through a, a non-custodial wallet because that's, that's how Web3 works. And if you're transacting with a, an NFT exchange, that NFT exchange is something you're connecting to through a non-custodial wallet as well. And so, you know, effectively what that would look like is I move, uh, you know, $10,000 of, of USDC or Ether or Bitcoin or whatever it is. And um, I'm interacting with the marketplace and I want to transact for an NFT. And I'm doing that, you know, on a permissionless infrastructure. And I then take possession of that, uh, et cetera. That activity 
is sort of in a, in that kind of parallel permissionless blockchain world. Um, now if a, uh, a, a custodial service wanted to allow you to, you know, buy an NFT from a marketplace and the custodial service is interacting directly with the smart contracts, that's where it starts to get complicated. This gets back to the whole smart contract discussion. Like, there are lots and lots of services now where it's a it's a custodial uh, service that itself behind the scenes is you know putting you know stablecoins up into DeFi contracts or is putting Ethereum up into DeFi contracts on your behalf um, and interacting with smart contracts to give you access to it where you don't actually need to you know do self custody etc. That set of activities. That is, there's a giant question mark about that. Like, is that even legally possible? Uh, because there is no way for that exchange or that custodial service to know the name and address of the smart contract. <laughs> like, what's the, what's the name and address of compound protocol? Uh, it, you know, it, it just, it just doesn't work. This is again back to the rulemaking. Why, if this was serious in terms of process, like we would take the time to think about, okay, how do financial intermediaries deal with DeFi in the context of these, uh, you know, financial crime concerns. And like, let's think, think that through and, and frankly, give the industry time. Um, in my letter to the senior staff, including Secretary Mnuchin, I specifically believe that there are ways for decentralized identity and identity protocols and other things to be layered on this in a way where you can both have financial privacy and you can have accountability and record keeping. And that is compatible with, you know, this emerging world of smart contracts, but it's going to take a year or two to figure that out. And so the right thing in my mind is create the space, try and work with industry to figure it out. Don't just jam it through. So I, I think that's really where the big question marks are. All right. So let's talk a little bit about this process, um, you know, as you guys mentioned earlier, the comment period for this proposed rule is only 15 days. A normal length of time is more like minimum 30 or more often something like 60 days. Coin Center even published something where they <laughs> talked about how there's this one proposed rule for the banking industry that's been under consideration for six years. So yeah, <laughs> yeah like has a 15 day comment period ever happened before? Like, is this um, not out of FinCEN? They have never done a 15 day comment period. So, I mean, I've, I know this sounds crazy. We're actually grateful to have these 15 days because, as I mentioned before, there was going to be zero days. So, um, you know, this is at least something, but it's, you know, a very inconvenient time. And, um, Though the good news is it could be the grounds for an Administrative Procedure Act case against them for not taking enough time um, and allowing enough time for this to happen. So we've been working um, with Jake Shravinsky, who is, um, you know, one of our, he chairs our DeFi working group at the Blockchain Association. Um, we've been working um, with the team at Kirkland and Ellis, including Paul Clement, who's a former Solicitor General to try to figure out what is the best sort of legal strategy. So, you know, going forward, we're going to obviously comment on the letter and, you know, work through Christmas and probably not go skiing as many days as I had hoped because um, we're going to have to be figuring out how best to respond to this. But simultaneously, we're also coming up with a legal strategy to figure out how to push back on this and prevent it from 
going into effect um, because we do think that the process here um, has not been followed. Um, I mean, it very clearly hasn't been followed and that, um, you know, that they shouldn't be allowed to move forward with such a short time frame. I would add one thing to that just, and this is almost a, a little bit of a call to action, which is there, you know, I think there are probably 30 to 40 million people in the United States who are, you know, interacting with digital currency and um, who probably care a lot about this. And that's a huge number of people that are impacted. Uh, so the impact is broad, but the, the call to action is really people who care about this need to be they submitting their own comments, but also, you know, reaching out to Congress, reaching out to their representative, you know, elected officials and making it clear that they feel very strongly that this is not a fair review process and that this deserves a review, not just uh, on this administrative level, uh, but, you know, frankly, they're you know, this is something that Congress has not even had an opportunity to look at. And so I think, um, you know, people need to get out there and and apply as much pressure as possible uh, so that there is a, a more extensive review period on this uh, so that, you know, the some of the issues that we've identified here can be thought through. There's and also an interesting time frame ahead of us. Um, I mean, as we mentioned before, I think Mnuchin is going to do everything he can to make this role final prior to Inauguration Day on January 20th. But if we could succeed in extending the, the comment period or extending the period of time where FinCEN has to review all of the comments to get to January 21st, I think this would be a totally different ballgame. I think we would be able to work with the new administration and start over on something like this. And so going back to Jeremy's call for action, every you know sort of unique argument that is brought forth um, has to be addressed as part of the regulatory process. And so you know we highly encourage people to um, to comment um, and um, that will you know lengthen the time needed. Um, in order for FinCEN to to meet all of the requirements before making the rule final, so um, so getting a lot of comments in is 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 going to be important. <laughs> it sort of um, reminds me of a common tactic in crypto, which is you know the um, denial of service attack. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. One thing that I was curious about is you. So you mentioned this Administrative Procedure Act. And legal action, does that, I don't know what that looks like. Would that mean like a literal lawsuit against this or, or mm -hmm. what? Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple ways, there's a couple ways we could do it. Um, and we're, we're evaluating, but one, one way to stop this thing from going into effect is to, to sue the government and say that you can't put this out there. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're looking to do that. Um, and that would probably be in the form of a preliminary injunction at the time that a final rule comes out. But we're looking at all of the different options that are there right now. Um, the other option we have, um, because if the rule does become final, it does become quite difficult to undo the rule, right? Once it's final, you can't just... But if it's in this proposal stage, I think like you said, um, the Coin Center folks had mentioned... Some of these rulemakings go on for years, and sometimes they get pulled, and they or they get you know they get stopped along the way. Um, and so, if we can keep the rulemaking open to get to the next administration, that's our best chance. But if it does go final, we have the lawsuit route that I mentioned, and we also have um, something called the Congressional Review Act, which is um, a tool that Congress has to 
undo regulations that they don't like. That is going to be a that would be a fairly heavy lift to get the votes to to essentially undo this rule, but it's not necessarily impossible. So we're looking at a legislative strategy on that side, and then we're also looking at um, you know working with uh, working through the courts in order to um, get this thing slowed down um, uh, before it goes into effect. And then I, I wanted to add. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Jeremy. I, I wanted to add one 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 thought here as well, which is somewhat tangential, which is um, essentially, you know, I, I don't want everyone to be all doom and gloom here <laughs> because I think, um, you know, you've actually seen, you know, uh, a week, uh, a week or so ago, obviously there was some heightened uh, concerns about, you know, an outright ban or, you know, more, more aggressive measures, which w- were in fact being contemplated. Uh, and the market obviously reacted to that. Uh, I think, um, you know, gradually, you know, th- th- there's so much interest in the market right now. It's obviously, it's obviously grown, but, but even, you know, specifically after 5 p.m. yesterday, when the details of this rule were published, the market is up. Um, and, and I think, um, it, you know, I'm, I'm very close to, you know, some of the biggest market makers in the world. And I think people have kind of shrugged it off. And, uh, and I think they've shrugged it off, um, for two reasons. I think one is, the perception is, you know, as if you refer to the Ari Parle thread as well, is sort of like, okay, well, DeFi can go on. People can continue to u- utilize, you know, permissionless infrastructure. Yeah, there's there's some hassle around it, um, etc. Um, but it's this is not this is not somehow, uh, you know, going to destroy the ability to use permissionless blockchains, right? So I think that's one piece. I think the other piece, which is actually more subtle, is that. You know, I have been, you know, obviously, you know, trying to work with mainstream financial institutions to and to work with the crypto industry for a very long time. And the number one issue that has always been limiting financial institutions, banks specifically, of getting involved is the compliance teams. The compliance officers basically say there's no way for us to have a way to keep track of what people are doing with permissionless blockchains. And we can there, therefore it's impossible for us to meet our BSA obligations. So we have to stay completely away from this as the OCC has basically said, Hey, you guys can get into crypto. You guys can keep crypto on your balance sheet. You can provide custodial services. You can support uh, stable coins, stable coin networks as that has happened. That's been a really positive thing. You're seeing institutional participation that's meaningful, that's coming into the market right now. And you're seeing more and more banks saying, hey, how do we get into this? The PayPal announcement is another example. This issue and having some resolution around this issue, I believe, will lead to um, massive scale financial institution participation in these markets because they will finally, at some level, the compliance departments will say, okay, compliance departments don't like gray area. They don't like not having rules. They like rules. Um, If they have a rule, then they know what they need to follow. And so this in some ways answers that question, which has been looming over this industry for seven or eight years. And so you could decide whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing to have more banks involved in crypto. Um, But I think that um, some resolution of this issue, whether it's this specific rule as it's proposed now, or some more extensive period where the industry can work on it and address some of the issues that we've identified will lead to um, the mainstreaming of crypto 
um, in, in a larger way. And I, 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 I want to make sure that that's not lost on people as well. Yeah, although I think what's fascinating to me about this is that, so I totally get the point that you're making, and I do agree that it will lead to that, just having more clarity. Um, however, it, it goes also back to what we were saying, you know, was my debate with Ari Paul, where I do think that the rules, the way they're written now, will actually cut off certain revenue streams and lines of business for some of these bigger companies. Um, you know, like, I don't know how this would affect, yeah, like different things like staking or any services they may want to offer in Yield Farm or whatever it is. So um, in that regard, I feel like it disadvantages less technical people, like like people like me who, you know, mm-hmm. I, it's not like I interact totally with MetaMask agree. all the time. And then the totally one time agree. I did for the first time in a long time, I literally yeah. lost $500 in like five yeah. minutes. Yeah. It was terrible. Like, <laughs> totally. I, like and I, I haven't used MetaMask since. I was yeah. like so burnt. So, so, so yeah. more tech, so the, I feel like this drives a thing where like it, it opens up crypto only to more technical people and not to everyday people. Yeah, I think I think that's a risk. And I think like worst case scenario, this thing gets stamped through. There's no way to stop it. It goes into effect. There's some, you know, some period of time. The next the next step is we need additional guidance. We need additional clarification. We need additional amendments. We need to we need to we need to work on that issue so that, you know, mainstream financial institutions that want to tap decentralized networks for services and provide those as value to their users have the ability to do so. And do so in a really clear way. So we have to continue to fight for that. And so just to go back to Kristen's points earlier about the Biden administration, Jeremy, you did say on CNBC that you expected the Biden administration to ultimately be positive toward crypto. But, but I, don't, I don't know in the context of your comments, did you did you mean like around this type of issue or, you know, why did you say that? And why did you and, and what do you think their attitude would be in the short term if the rulemaking does go uh, past the Trump administration? Well, I mean, I, I would I would say a couple things. I mean, I th- I think there's there's obviously you know uh, career civil servants that work in agencies. There's a, a tr- tremendous number of people who work in the Treasury Department, in the OCC, in FinCEN, in law enforcement, in uh, you know in, in other key agencies who are getting more and more educated on crypto thanks to Kristen and team and 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 you know a, a broader just general awareness in the space. And I think there's just so much more understanding now than there's ever been. And there's a real recognition that this is very significant and important infrastructure. And so I just think at the federal government level, there is just in general um, a more constructive view on all of this. And I think that's getting more and more heightened as this you know, grows around the world. I think specifically with the Biden administration, my view is that um, there's going to be a major focus in the Biden administration on, you know, American competitiveness in critical industries and infrastructure areas. I think that the approach that the Biden administration will take is not going to be one of, you know, the, the standing up massive, you know, uh, federal government initiatives. It's going to be to tap American entrepreneurship. It's going to be to tap the great, you know, uh, you know technology capabilities, the great, you know, p- private firms. To, to do that in a way where the public sector and the private sector work closely together to advance those things. And blockchains and what they enable is clearly a category and digital currency is clearly a category where, you know, the United States needs to have a leadership position, not just in this sort of U.S.-China thing, which people tend to over-dramatize, I think, but I think just in general, 
Um, you know, th- this is, you know, I always use the 1996 metaphor, and I think it's very apt. You know, we might have a Netscape moment with Coinbase's IPO, which was similar to back then. But I think very specifically, people are seeing that the global economic system and the financial infrastructure is going to get rebuilt in, in the image of the Internet and on this. And we got to get it right. And um, and so I, I think that this is just a time it happens to be when Biden and, and team are coming to pick to, to, to power. And I, I, likewise, I think that in general, we'll want to kind of govern from the middle, um, and, uh, and try to, you know, approach this in a bipartisan manner. There are, I think this is an industry that has, uh, you know, people on, on, on every which way of the political spectrum who are, who are interested in seeing it move forward. And I think that that, uh, will contribute to, uh, general, uh, engagement and support. And so just so I understand how this will work, if indeed the rulemaking does go into the Biden administration, do you expect at that point then it would be kind of more the, you know, career level, just bureaucrats who will carry the ball forward and then therefore will institute like a more typical process? Is that your sense of what would happen? Or, you know, because I also like, I mean, not that I've looked into this, but I feel like the Biden administration probably has a lot of priorities when it comes in. I don't yeah. know how high this is going to rank. So I just wonder, is it going to languish or? Um, you know, there there could be a number of things. At the very least, um, I think we can expect it to slow down. Um, at the very best, maybe it gets pulled entirely and then the conversation can start, um, you know, anew with, with folks in the administration. Um, you know, FinCEN is one of those agencies that it is all career um, people. So the, the team that's in place now um, will continue to be there, um, you know, going in, you know, at post January 20th. And so we're hopeful that um, the, the problem we have now is that we have a Treasury Secretary who's, for whatever reason, made this his number one priority. I don't think this is going to be Yellen's number one priority out of the gate. And this will be, um, yeah, sort of reverted to the, the normal process where we have really well-educated, talented people in government that are trying to think creatively about these issues. And, um, you know, those are the ones that we want to be engaging with on these conversations, not, um, you know, Treasury secretaries that are uh, difficult to get in front of. So one other thing is that, you know, pretty much this whole conversation has been pretty focused domestically. But Collins Belton, who's another lawyer in the crypto space, told me that he thinks this breaks down GDPR compliance uh, in the EU, and he just was super skeptical it would fly over there. So how do you think GDPR issues might affect the ability to implement a rule like this? Well, I hadn't thought through that angle, but um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a, just a lot of information that's going to be stored in one place. Um, and um, but yeah, no, that's an interesting thought. And th- th- this is this is a, I mean, I, I believe that there are exemptions around, you know, basically, you know, uh, information uh, sharing associated with tracking uh, associated with financial crimes enforcement. I don't I don't know the details on that. But I mean, for example, I mean, the, the European Union and its members have been very proactive around the, the travel rule and FATF work. And that requires a massive amount of, of PII flying around all around the world, uh, you know, creating, you know, kind of honeypots for for uh, for cyber criminals, um, which is one of the issues with with travel rule. 
And Jeremy, uh, when you say they've been active with that, you mean that they are requiring kind of more? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, five so AMLD is is very, very you know clear on that. And you know, uh, what is five AMLD? Okay, so, so the European Union has an anti money laundering directive. They're now in the fifth version of the anti money laundering directive. It has a whole series of things specific to virtual currency firms, to registration requirements, to uh, KYC procedures. And it is the the sort of regulatory framework that binds those virtual asset service providers to the FATF guidelines that have been you know laid out as well. So uh, actually, the European Union is 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 pretty um, pretty strict on on a lot of this. And I think you obviously saw what happened in France last week. You know, all this came out of the G seven meeting. This has been worked on as an issue. This has been one of the top issues for for the Secretary of Treasury in the G seven. Uh, and frankly, at the G20 level. And so, you know, I, I think it, there was essentially a kind of handshake around the table that everybody's going to go roll this out in the G7. So I don't think we're done uh, with with uh, with this. I think we're going to see, you know, G7 and other G20 member states introducing rules or, 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 or regulations similar to this in a coordinated fashion uh, as we go into the new year. Oh, interesting. So it seems like the EU does not see a conflict between these types of rules in GDPR? No, I mean, if you if you look specifically at what France has already done, if you look at what the German finance minister announced around this coming out of the G7 meeting, uh, whatever that was on the 10th, uh, I mean, his words did not need mincing. And so I would expect certainly in Germany um, this, this something in this space is imminent. Yeah, I don't remember the exact quote, but I did include it in my newsletter and unconfirmed one week recently. So I will try to find that and link to that in the show notes. Um, all right. So, I mean, we kind of talked a little bit about um, what you thought people should do in terms of the comments over the next few days, but I don't know if you have any other kind of like tips for people. Cause I, I kind of was like, are we going to see some mass exodus of crypto from the exchanges over the next 15 days? Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, listen, I, I would encourage individuals, um, you know, to to submit comments. If you go to Treasury's website, you can get a copy of the rule and their instructions in there on how to email in a comment. Um, there will probably, my guess, be some activists that come up with a streamlined way for people to do this. So I'd keep an eye out for for those links um, that make it easier to submit comments. But, you know, if, if you're listening as someone who is participating in the cryptocurrency industry, um, you know, th this is a, I think this is a really, this is the biggest bullet that's been fired at us um, so far um, in the United States. And, and, you know, we need to fight back against these types of attacks. And um, if you're not a member of the blockchain association, I'm putting in a plug, like, please join us. Like we are a very small team because we have a very small budget. We could be a very big team if we had a big budget and we could do more work if we have more support. So, um, you know, for, for those companies that are out there that are not yet working with us, please join us. Like we are um, working together. We had Jeremy and I were in a, a war room that we set up on our signal here where we were all sharing information with different people that we were speaking with in government and coming up with a strategy and also, you know, analyzing it, the information when it came out last night. And so, um, you know, it's a really great team of really smart people, um, you know, both here internally at the Blockchain Association and also within our membership. And so 
um, you know, this, this work doesn't do itself. So we, we want to get more boots on the ground. I want to, I want to reiterate that. And I was going to say the same thing, which is Kristen and her team are amazing. And the work has been incredible and, and just witnessing even the, the ability to change some of the things that have been happening on this particular matter, just in a matter of weeks, it, it's tremendous. You know, there's sort of the 1% rule, which is everyone in the world should put 1% of at least 1% of their wealth into crypto. Well, every crypto firm and every crypto firm's treasury, they, they should probably take 1% of it and, and contribute to and become members of blockchain association because, uh, th- this is, um, extremely high value, high leverage work. Um, and, uh, would really, really encourage that. One other thing I wanted to ask about, Kristen, was I've been noticing on Twitter that Coin Center has been raking in the the bucks um, on Gitcoin. <laughs> yeah. They raised three hundred thousand dollars last I saw via Gitcoin. Is that something that the Blockchain Association could do, or I don't know if there are any particular we've, rules around? Yes, we've we've thought about trying to do something. Um, you know, we do we are stewards of the Defend Crypto Fund, um, which is you know sort of a separate project that that we have oversight of. Um, but the, um, no, the way we're structured is we represent um, the companies and the organizations and individuals um, should absolutely, and companies too, should also support Coin Center. Um, you know, I think those, that's a fantastic team. We do a lot of sharing of information and um, strategizing back and forth with them. Um, they're, they're, but they have a different point of view. They represent the technology and, um, and they're a great way for individuals who want to get involved um, uh, to go over there. But yeah, from the industry perspective, that that is the Blockchain Association's point of view. So um, very similar missions, but slightly different perspectives. And um, yeah, they do fantastic work. Okay. So I, I know you may not want to make predictions, but I was just curious how you thought this was going to go. Like, what do you think is the most likely outcome of all this? I mean, we're going to give it our best shot to continue to throw sand in the gears and slow this thing down. Um, based off of how aggressive and how personally involved the Treasury Secretary is, you know, I think he is going to push this out to a final rule. Um, and I think we're going to have to go to court. I think that's that's the most likely pathway we see. Jeremy? I completely concur. Wow. It's very, you know, I've never worked in government um, but it's just very interesting how one individual at the top, even when everybody around that <laughs> yes. person does, doesn't agree how that uh, can force things through. Um, all right. Well, so we will check back and see if you guys were correct. <laughs> um, but anyway, okay. Well, it's been so fun having you on the show. Thank you for doing this on a Saturday morning. Um, where can people learn more about you and this proposed rule? Um, well, if you go to the blockchainassociation.org and you go to our policy positions page, um, wallets issues are right at the top and you can see our report. You can see our letter that we sent over to Treasury, um, I guess, a week or so ago uh, when we were in the middle of this lobbying blitz. Um, and we've got lots of information there. And I, I would just say I, I you know, I, I communicate publicly on this here and there on Twitter at Jerry So follow me there. And um you, you know, I'll have more and more to say about this there as well. And you also have your show, Money. Oh, that's right. The Money Movement. Um, so, yes, you can tune in The Money Movement, The Money Movement, you know, YouTube.com slash The Money Movement. Um, and and uh, certainly we'll be picking up the conversation there as well. All right. Great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks, Thanks Laura. Laura. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Jeremy, Kristen, and this advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Bossy Baker, Shashank, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.